The House of Roll journeys far and wide to bring you exceptional quality kitchen and bath fixtures. We've discovered the world's best craftsmen and techniques. Using materials native to the region and tools accustomed to individual craftsmen, we strive for perfection every step of the way. With all of this, you'll see the details of your own story, the story of a life well-crafted. This is the story Craft tells. Welcome to the House of Roll. of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? This is my country. I'm proud to call it home. This is my country. And I'll never stand alone. It's time for populism with a purpose. Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician, and she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and post-partisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. And welcome to the Reimagine America Radio Hour. There are plenty of folks out there trying to inflame your passions, even a week after the midterm elections, because they're not yet totally settled. My purpose is different. I've come to inform you, to give you information that will enable you to make an independent judgment on current events and to encourage you to act on that judgment, to be in touch with your representatives, to hold them accountable. As a businesswoman, I focus a lot on the numbers. The numbers tell me what's out of the norm, what needs attention, and then how to prioritize the necessary changes. And last Sunday, I promised you this week we'd have a few new surprises. Well, most of the surprises we had this week were not welcome surprises. They were neither expected nor did we want them. There are 25 known dead and more than 200,000 acres burnt or burning in California this morning. Whole communities, the whole town of paradise, gone. 12 dead at the borderline bar and grill. This time, it was a handgun. And still, the NRA persists. 115,516 Americans were killed in World War I. The war, we were told, and they were told, would end all war. That war ended 100 years ago today, and they're celebrating in Paris. I'm sorry. This was not the show I had planned to bring you today, but this is the week that we had. So let's talk a little about fire and California. Fire is not new to California. I've lived here all my life and I can't remember a year when we didn't have some fire. 
But the past two years have brought a level of devastation that has no precedence. They keep telling us it's the biggest ever in California history until the next one. And fire knows no limits. So as I said, the fact is there are always fires in California. It happens every year. It's part of the natural cycle. It's a natural phenomena. It's nature's way of removing the dead and decaying trees in the forest and creating a fresh bed from which new and healthy seedlings can sprout. And drought, drought has brought us, along with the Japanese beetle that's been with us for about 20 years, um, about a million dead trees in our forests. There was a time when the Forest Service aggressively cleared the fuel a fire needs to burn. But more recent forest management science has erred on the side of nature doing its own thing in its own time. Naturally occurring forest fires usually start from something we call dry lightning. And again, that's related to drought. When you have enough combustion in the atmosphere to create a lightning strike that is not followed by a torrent of rain. But forest fires can also be started when humans are careless. A campfire not completely extinguished near Bass Lake caused a huge fire not far from Yosemite two years ago. And you know what? It happened again this year. The car fire burned more than 225,000 acres in July of 2018. It was caused by the misfire from a car in need of repair. That fire killed eight people, destroyed more than a thousand structures. That's one-sixth the number that were lost in paradise this week. It destroyed the whole town of Whiskey Town, which is a resort community for boating on Whiskey Lake. And it reduced significant sections of Redding, new development to ashes. It's estimated to have cost $1.6 billion. And Santa Ana winds, we're, we're very familiar with Santa Ana winds because every autumn they blow over the arid hills of Southern California. But the past few years, the damage has been worse. It's part of a persistent drought phenomena in Southern California and the sheer volume of fires that stretch available crews to their limits. But the two most devastating fires in California in recent years have a common cause. Wind in combination with electric power lines. The campfire that just leveled the entire town of Paradise and where we know 23 perished in their, while trying to escape the flames and there are more than 100 missing that fire has just leveled the entire town of Paradise, some 6,000 homes, 280 businesses, and it is now threatening some portions of Oroville. It's said to be the second largest fire in California history, but at 109,000 acres as of early Sunday morning and only 25% contained, it's liable to exceed that second place finish. Only the Tubbs fire in Napa and Sonoma counties last year is larger. And you know what? 
if you believe this morning's paper, then um, this campfire is already the biggest in California history because Tubbs took out 5,636 structures and killed 22 people. This fire is bigger. This fire is more destructive. This fire has caused more death, and they're expecting to find more uh, that that death toll will climb. PG&E and Con Edison in Southern California bear a significant responsibility for the property damage and the loss of life. That loss of life, it haunted me last night, included a stable of horses in Malibu yesterday. Only one badly burnt pony was rescued alive and was taken to a large animal hospital in Ojai. Um, There were lots of horses rescued from Malibu, but this stable, those horses were all in their stalls and it's bothered me all night that they didn't get those horses out in a timely fashion. Some people tweeted back at me, well, there wasn't any time, but if you look at the early tweets the day before, um, you gotta find a way. Um, in some cases, they they walked horses down to the beach in Malibu so that if God, for, if God forbid the fire came any closer, they could move those horses into the surf where they would be safe. So um, if you're, if you have the animals, you're, you're responsible. Power lines, wind and drought, doesn't matter whether it's man or beast, it's just not a good combination. And PG&E has acknowledged their responsibility in the Tubbs fire last year, and they, um, the morning after the campfire started, did acknowledge that um, one of their transformers had blown up and that the fire was um, first noticed just minutes later. So we're, it's a good assumption that that transformer explosion is what caused um, the ignition, the initial ignition um, at campfire and the um, conditions in the surround, in the forest surrounding the city of the town of Paradise uh, were what made it so horrific. So PG&E has accepted their responsibility. Mm. But they want to. But they went to the state legislature along with their friends at Con Edison, um, and in a anticipation of what this would cost them, and they got a change in the law that will make you and I partially responsible. Yep, they can now increase rates to help pay for the damage claims that result. I'm kind of surprised that one did not make it to the ballot. That was done quietly in Sacramento. And we'll be back in just a moment with a little bit more about fire and what we can do about it. You're listening to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we're back with a little bit more about fire. What we're doing, what we really could be doing, I think is more important. So what are we doing? Well, PG&E, because they want to limit their liability, has now got a new policy. They're going to proactively turn off everybody's power. 
if there's an expectation of 40 or 50 mile an hour winds. And they did this in Calistoga and parts of Napa and in the Berryessa region a couple of weeks ago, and it was met with protest. People were without power for 36 hours, food rotted in the refrigerator. You know the story. Okay, so is that the right, you know, I get that PG&E is looking for ways to um, uh, make, to prevent another fire like the Tubbs fire, but is that the right approach? Is it always, is it always the rate payer and the customer who must pay for PG&E's um, entrenchance? It might be a smart idea in the overnight hours when you know people are sleeping and one of the things that we learned in the Tubbs fire was it was really hard to do the, the evacuation notifications in the middle of the night because of um, you know, people turn off their phone, their cell phones, and and so on and so forth. Um, and so maybe it's a good idea if you're having really high winds and you really fear that a tree and a power line might c- connect momentarily and cause a spark, and and the rest then becomes history. Maybe it makes sense to turn off the power in those overnight hours when it's really difficult to communicate with people. Um, and when it and when a fire may have a better chance of getting started before it is noticed, but to turn off the power for thirty six hours in anticipation of the possibility of a wind event, um, it brings whole communities to a halt. Uh, it it it's the difference between making it and not making it for a small business, let's say a restaurant in Calistoga. And you know what's going to happen if they maintain this kind of policy where where um, you have to be on your own for power to keep your refrigerator going, et cetera, um, for 36 or 48 hours in anticipation of the possibility of trouble? We're going to become like Florida, where everybody has their own emergency generator. But there's a difference between hurricane plagues, plagued Florida and California. And that difference is when there is trouble in Florida, there's a lot of water, there's rain. And I'm not sure that a lot of small gasoline or propane fire generators in the hands of inexperienced homeowners in a windstorm is a particularly good idea. I don't know about you, but I think I can, I can what if that story into one of those generators being the cause of a major conflagration. But there is another cause for the explosion of forest fires that we are seeing. And it's one of the things that we need to consider as we help these communities and others like them to begin the rebuilding process. And that problem, like so many other problems in California, is due to population growth. As the population grows and as housing in the urban inner areas of the state has become less and less affordable, more and more development has been taking place in the foothills. And the foothills of California, unlike its valleys, are drier, are further from natural water sources, and unfortunately have been built by developers to a suburban urban building code. We don't have a different building code for those foothill developments, and they're indefensible in the circumstances that we are seeing today. So 
with a quarter of a million people evacuated in the Woolsey fire alone, the first order of business should be temporary shelter. But the Woolsey fire is taking place in an urban landscape. Those are rolling hills north of the L.A. Basin and to the west of the L.A. Basin, the canyons of Malibu. And nobody ever really considered until a couple of years ago things like putting condos in Malibu, you know, along the beach, uh, dense, dense development. So with a quarter of a million people out of their homes in places like Simi Valley, you know, Simi Valley is the home of the Reagan Library. Uh, They're big, beautiful, they are tract homes, but they're big, beautiful homes all along the hillsides below the, the library itself. And those homes are at risk and some of them are being lost. Uh, Thousand Oaks has seen evacuations. In fact, their evacuation center has now been evacuated. So um, I, I saw a tweet last night that disturbed me, so I thought I'd, I'd raise that point um, this morning. And that was, um, you know, we're, we're out of our homes and where's the federal government? Well, it's not, you know, there's no money from the federal government. Well, here's the deal. The first order of business is temporary shelter. And the first order of business doesn't, you know, is the Red Cross, California Emergency Services, Ventura and Los Angeles County and Butte County Emergency Services. And others are now stepping in. But the speed of these fires and the being spread by 50 mile an hour winds has outpaced the disaster relief response. So everybody's gonna have to help. Once again, it's gonna be time for each of us to go to our phones and text a little bit of money to the Red Cross so that the Red Cross can help these people in the initial um, disaster preparedness. And I will say California, for all the things that we say California does not do well, you know, you can talk about the DMV, you can talk about um, the um, uh, Medicaid program, you can talk about all sorts of things that California does really poorly as a government structure. But one thing we know how to do here because of fire and earthquake and, and bad and lots of experience is emergency services. So um, if you have friends and family who are in those affected areas, that's your first line of defense is go to the websites for the state of California's emergency services and the counties of Los Angeles, Ventura, Butte, and Sacramento. And all of those emergency service organizations are here to help in those initial moments. The next line of defense for homeowners will be their insurance plans, And yes, those insurance plans and those needs for temporary housing, et cetera, that's when FEMA comes to the to the table and um, acting as as the acting governor earlier this week. Gavin Newsom has already requested that assistance, but you can't expect it to be there um, in the first 12 hours of an emergency. That's the state of California. And we can do this. That said. 
President Trump's tweet from Paris on Friday night was ill-advised, was stupid, and raised anger and confusion for absolutely no reason in a horrible situation. Why make it worse? And we'll be back in just a minute to talk a little bit more about that and about where we are going to go from here. Back to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy on 860 AM, The Answer. And we're back. Let's talk about where we go from here. But first we need to talk about a lack of empathy. I'm sitting here on the verge of tears, and I'm, knock on wood, in Central California along with you, and none of us are immediately threatened with anything more than a postponed not 49er football game because of the amount of smoke. So the president of the United States on Friday night sent out a tweet that read, there's no reason for these massive, deadly, and costly forest fires in California except that forest management is so poor. Billions of dollars are given each year with so many lives lost, all because of gross mismanagement of the forests. Remedy now or no more federal payments. To which I responded with the most popular tweet I have ever sent out. I mean, I was amazed on Saturday morning when I saw the hundreds of likes. I was watching the news while I did this. You have no idea what you are talking. And I sent it to at real, you know, at at real Donald Trump. You have no idea what you are talking about. These fires are not burning in a forest but in highly populated areas, propelled by high winds and utility lines. People's lives are going up in flames. At that point, nine people have died. If you have nothing positive to contribute, just shut up. I I don't think I've ever been as angry at Washington as I was at that moment. But Gavin Newsom soon-to-be-our-philosopher-king, got into the mix himself, saying lives have been lost, entire towns have been burnt to the ground, cars are abandoned on the side of the road, people are forced from their homes. This is not a time for partisanship. This is a time for coordinating relief and response and lifting those in need up. I think that is was a great tweet. The uh, California Firefighters Association was more in line with my tweet, just really angry. And as I said, um, Gavin Newsom acting as the um, governor on Thursday um, has already asked for assistance and was actually in Butte yesterday um, trying to do some in-person. He has an empathy challenge along with along with President Trump with his hands in his back pockets. He wasn't you know, he was listening, but he wasn't, um, uh, he's not a comforting presence. So it, it brought me to two points. Don't you just love public policy by tweet? It's so uplifting. It's so informative. It's so 
doesn't help, especially when both of them, the participants, are empathy challenged. But Gavin, I've got a little unsolicited advice for you. Yeah, you're right. This is a moment for bipart- to put partisanship aside. But before we lost another almost 7,000 structures and counting, California is in the middle of a housing crisis. We've lost more than 10,000 individual family homes in the last year and countless more apartment homes. And we were already short of housing before those terrible fires happened. There's only been a scattering of homes starting the rebuilding process from last year's Tubbs fire. You see like one house and a big square block that's partially framed. And there are a number of reasons for the slow start on rebuilding in in Sonoma and Napa and, and counties, and particularly in the city of Santa Rosa. And one of those is insurance claims. Even if you've kept up with the year-over-year increases in so-called replacement value, what we're finding is that generally the insurance payments are either uh, debated and disputed, um, and even when they're finally paid, they don't yield enough to help the homeowner completely rebuild. Also, there are not enough... contractors available to individually build, rebuild all of these homes. And the planning and permit approval process is so long, so slow, so complicated. If you're an ordinary homeowner, getting through it is, um, is just um, another nightmare. It's an insult to your injury. And it adds too much unanticipated cost to rebuilding and these people now are subject to all sorts of, of things like, yeah, you got to put a, put solar on and so forth. And those are all expenses because they're more recent laws that were not calculated into their insurance premiums, and they have to be paid for. So we've got to find a way to close the gap, both in terms of speed and efficiency and effectiveness. So I've got some ideas, guys. Yeah. Soon to be Governor Newsom, why don't we try something novel? Why don't we try to actually get ahead of the problem? Why not sit down with the incoming legislative leadership and take a look at the 2015 uh, analysis that the state legislative analyst's office did to um, evaluate and come up with recommendations to improve both the high cost of construction in California, almost two or three times the cost of any other state, and also the complexity um, of current law and regulation that add to those um, costs. So we need to look at existing law and see what we could change that would make things faster and more effective, more 21st century, less 19th century in terms of paperwork and so forth. We need to look at the regulations that have been spawned by those laws that are interpreted by um, bureaucrats all over the state. We need, we need some local control 
along with with a framework of statewide consistency to make it easier for homeowners to get through the approval process. And, and both of those legal and regulatory processes have to be sensitive to the environmental concerns. We've got to be good stewards of the environment in the 21st century. But we've got to do it in a 21st century way rather than through the Byzantine maze of conflicting rules and regulations. We should set a goal to reduce the time from architectural drawing to breaking ground by 50%. We can do this. We're the smartest people in the world. We can do this. And we've got to take into consideration the natural facts that indicating that indicate a certain area you, you should not be rebuilding in some of the canyons or some of the footholds. You may uh, foothills, footholds, foothills. You may need to look for alternative sites or um, accept some um, limited protections if you if you're a homeowner and you choose to ignore those those warnings. Um, you, in some cases, that may require some renegotiation with the federal government, which brings me to another point. The president's tweet about billions of dollars, there is some money planned in 2020 to help with forest, with removing some of the dead trees in the forest. But here's the problem. California does not manage those forests. The federal government does. It's the United States Forest Service that owns 90% of the forests in California. And so we've got to find a way uh, to log some of those dead trees, to build, rebuild some of these homes, to get some of that, to reduce some of the risk. Okay, how the state and federal governments negotiate that, something that needs to be done. And last but not least on that list of things that we could do... We could bury the utility lines in every rebuilt community. I mean, this is not a one house and that's burnt down. This is a whole neighborhood. You've got to rebuild the infrastructure. So why not bury the lines? And if the PG&E continues to resist burying lines, then let's get the PUC involved or let's pass a law and make them do it. If all the stakeholders... Property owners, communities, shareholders, and ratepayers share the pain. If we can prevent two or three fires in the next few years, it would pay to bury all of those utility lines. So why can't we do that? And we'll be back in just a moment with my most controversial idea. You're listening to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we're back. And just before, you know, I've got a couple of controversial ideas. The first one's kind of small. And that is that if you're going to build in the foothills, where you are further from water and the air is drier, and we're, you know, we're talking about you got to have a solar panel on your roof. Why don't we, we forbid people to have anything but tile roofs on those homes? Why don't we change the, the 
uh, fencing um, codes and regulations so that we put up um, more stucco and, and concrete uh, fences and fewer um, wood fences that catch fire. You saw the, the firemen trying to rip down those wood fences in some of these communities so that they can create a fire break because that's the first thing that's going to catch on fire. So why don't we say no? If you want to live in the foothills, you cannot have a wood fence. But then why don't we do, Governor-elect Newsom, why don't you do something really out of the norm? Why don't you reach across the aisle? Why don't you reach out to John Cox, who ran a campaign on affordability and the quality of life in California? John Cox is a developer. That's what the man does. That's what he made his fortune doing. Would he be willing to work with you on the rebuilding effort to do things that would jumpstart this process, working with the insurance commissioner and with banks and with FEMA to close the financing gaps? He's a developer. Can he get homeowners to agree to trade speed and cash savings for a little less individuality? We could rebuild, let's say, a community in Simi Valley, okay? We could rebuild the bones of those communities the way they were originally built. Multi-unit developments that were later customized by a succession of homeowners. When you're in a crisis, try to do something new. It's a challenge, Governor Newsom, future governor, governor-elect Newsom. Can you be a governor for all Californians that we need right now to help with this crisis? We already had an affordability crisis. Now we've got a crisis on steroids. But let's take a moment, because we've spent a whole lot of time on fire, on the first tragedy this week. Twelve innocent people died in Thousand Oaks out having a fun evening doing line dancing at a country western bar. I hear the argument from many people in my own community about the Second Amendment. And most of these people, some of them are, but most of them are not NRA members. But some have public safety backgrounds, and they know how to, all of them know how to use a, a, a weapon of, appropriately. And, and yet they will still say, only a good person with a gun can stop a bad person with a gun. gun. And that was certainly true at the borderline bar where Sheriff Sergeant Ron Hellis, a 29-year veteran of the Ventura County Sheriff's Office, lost his life but saved countless others. He was a by-the-book officer. He didn't take chances, but he ran toward fire so that others could escape. And so newly elected House of Representatives, you Democrats want to be civil. You guys that say you're going to do good things for people. Why can't we have, finally, the simple gun legislation we have talked about over and over again, forget the thoughts and prayers, Let's pass a law. Let's have universal background checks. Let's have a national standard. This, this person who did this thing in Thousand Oaks got his pistol, a long, what's called the long pistol, legally. Okay? He was 
not insane. He got a, a pistol legally, would have passed the background check. What he had with the pistol was illegal in California large capacity magazines. So let's pass a standard law in, California, in the United States on magazine capacity. Nobody's saying single shot, but eight or ten bullets is quite enough in a magazine. And let's strengthen the red flag laws that pepper the country that, and put the onus on the gun owner to prove that they can capably handle the gun rather than the family or the police who then have to be uh, prove, uh, who under current law have to prove that the person is a danger. Because we have a common element here. In Parkland, Florida, and in Thousand Oaks, the mother of the person who committed the heinous act had called the police several times to have them come and subdue an overly aggressive son. In the case in Thousand Oaks, he kicked in walls. In Parkland, he shot at his neighbor's pets. And he went to the VA, the, the gentleman in, in the the man in the former Marine in Thousand Oaks had been to the VA as required by the sheriff's office. And they said he was sane. Sane means he's not psychotic. He's not bipolar. It does not mean that he's stable enough to have a gun. Democrats want to point to Republicans as the obstacle to effective gun legislation. But in January, in the House of Representatives, the Democrats will have a majority uh, of 30-plus seats. There are still three seats hanging out there here in California. So I don't want to hear any more words, any more thoughts, any more sympathy. I want some action. No excuses. I want those Democrats to pass a bill and dare the Republican Senate to reject it. Because you know what? The killing must stop. Our children need to be able to go to school safely, to go out on a Wednesday night to do some line dancing without wondering if they're going to come home alive. And I don't know, does anybody disagree that we need, in fact, to do that? Even members of the NRA, the majority of members of the NRA, believe that strengthening the background checks Strengthening the red flag laws would save lives. So we need to look to Congress to begin that debate. And then you and I individually need to make sure that we stiffen the spines of everyone in the Congress of the United States. The NRA is not in charge. The NRA needs to get behind adequate background checks and red flag laws that will protect people. And then in the few minutes that we have left, let's, I, I really had planned to talk about uh, the split decision on Tuesday night. But you know what? We're not even sure exactly what that split decision is going to end up looking like. Because in Florida, we are again recounting the ballots and 
it I don't know how you adjudicate the uh, the Florida situation because you know what they are still finding ballots. I find that completely incomprehensible. Um, you know, I mailed my ballot a couple of weeks before the election and went in subsequently. Uh, there was a pretty high uh, percentage return. And, and I checked to make sure that it had been opened and counted. Um, and I urged a few listeners to do the same thing. And then I ended up having to deliver a ballot for someone to the polling place right across the street from where I live practically. Um, <clears throat> and that person knows who he is. Um, and of course, I, I had to sign that I was bringing the ballot because you have to, you know, they want to verify my signature too. And then they made me put it in a blue ballot box rather than the yellow ballot box because it was a carried in ballot. Um, and they gave me a little I voted sticker, which is still on my 49er windbreaker. Um, but you could see all the ballot boxes. So how is it that in Broward County yesterday, they found a whole bunch of bins full of ballots. How do you determine that those are real ballots without saying, scrap it all, let's vote again? And frankly, if you want an honest election in Florida right now, I think that's the only way to get there. I don't think the courts, as, a, as in 2000, will be able to straighten this one out. But it's another area where Congress needs to take um, some action. We need uniform ways to make sure that all the ballot boxes that are sent out are returned by an hour after the polls close in any given jurisdiction. We need a, a simple manner to make that happen. And we'll be back in just a moment with a few closing thoughts about the World War one memorials. Now, back to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy on 860 AM, The Answer. A hundred years ago today, on a rainy day in the Argonne Forest, in a railway car, World War I came to an end. Woodrow Wilson called it the war to end all wars. It's, an estimate, it's estimated that as many as 90 million soldiers and civilians were killed, maimed, gassed, and displaced. It should have been the war to end all wars. The United States did not enter the war until 1917, but our doughboys, as they were called, saw some of the worst fighting of that war. In the summer of, of 1918, in the Belleau Woods, 55 miles from Paris, 2,288 U.S. Marines were killed in the Battle of Belleau Woods. And a thousand more remain missing to this day. They suffered and they died side by side with their Canadian brethren. But only the head of state of Canada 
Canada's Justin Trudeau, showed up to memorialize their sacrifice yesterday. The United States was represented by White House Chief of Staff and Marine Four-Star General John Kelly and his good friend and fellow Marine General Joseph Dunsford, who is the chief of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Because of rainy weather, President Trump could not make the 55-mile journey by helicopter and so chose not to attend. All of the other allied heads of state with the same weather challenges showed up. As Justin Trudeau said a hundred years ago, you know, we're, we're standing here getting our hair and our suits wet for a few minutes. A hundred years ago, what was raining down on these Marines wasn't water, it was bullets. President Trump's staff mumbled something about logistics. I find it incomprehensible that he's so unpopular in France that a 55-mile limo trip was just too dangerous or too difficult, um, unsecure. How could it be unsecure if it was actually unannounced? Or maybe he could have, you know, uh, um, Prime Minister Trudeau has security as well, so maybe he could have hopped a ride with Trudeau. Except I think at the moment they're not speaking. It wasn't just rude to his American hosts that President Trump stayed in his hotel in Paris. It's an affront to the American people, to the 1% who serve so that the other 99% of us can live in freedom. The president couldn't be inconvenienced to pay honor to those few who give so much. So I've got about a minute to remind you that you can meet David French at the Liberty Forum in Mountain View on Tuesday, November the 13th, and I'll be there as well. His topic will be the the threat of intolerance, how the First Amendment can keep the United States from disintegrating. I'm sure it will be informative and helpful. In the meantime, if you want to learn more about some of the topics we've discussed today or listen to a podcast of this program, go to reimagineamerica.org. For more on um, for more information and uh, a blog that I'll post um, either later today or tomorrow about why we could use a part-time legislature. In the meantime, if you've got questions or topics you want me to talk about, send me an email at joyce at reimagineamerica.org. I try to respond to as many of you as I can. And in the meantime, have a wonderful Sunday. And remember, the Red Cross needs your help and your fellow Californians need it. Send $10. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.